0: He's not with us this morning. He's actually had the opportunity to go to the UK and he's ministering with Pastor Gilbert at a church um, in the UK. And they're doing an an open heaven conference and they are trusting for a mighty outpouring in a very religious culture. Um, So they're trusting for God just to break things open this morning. I'm missing him. He needs to come back home. So he'll be back next weekend, but he sends greeting and he's saying prayer for us this morning as well, because we too are trusting for a great outpouring this morning, Pentecost. Who's excited this morning? Who's come this morning with anticipation for something new? Can you just lift your hands if that's you? I just want to ask this morning, hands raised. Can we just agree to allow the Holy Spirit to have His way this morning? I was saying to some of the ushers this morning, I have no idea what the Lord wants to do. But I know He wants to move across this building this morning. And so, Holy Spirit, we roll out the red carpet we welcome you. Father, look at the hands that are raised. Your beloved. We ask God that you would move, that you would change us. We open ourselves up this morning. We say, Holy Spirit, have your way of your way. We long for more of you. We long for a mighty outpouring over your church. And I ask, Lord, as I minister this morning that you would anoint my lips. That you would open the ears and the eyes of every person that we would see in a different dimension today I pray we would hear the voice of our Father Holy Spirit have your way in Jesus name Amen A.W. Tozer says you can be sure that the Holy Spirit never enters a man and lets him live like the world Today we're about to be changed. Who's ready? Amen. So the Lord's laid a a word on my heart and, and I can feel it's a heavy word. But I'm going to be obedient to him this morning. And so the title of my message is Revival. Start with me. And that needs to be all of our prayer this morning, I believe. That God would start with each and every one of us. And I'm going to jump straight into the word and John chapter 20, a bit of context around the story is Jesus has just been raised from the dead and his disciples are hiding in a room in fear and Jesus comes in to their midst and he reveals himself to them. He reveals himself as the resurrected Christ, the risen Lord. He reveals to them that the prophecy has now been fulfilled, that on the third day he will rise again. And so he shows them his hands and his feet and the piercings on his side and he says, it's I. These disciples are not the 12 that we think of. Yes, it includes them, but it's the 120 that would later be found in the upper room. The reason we know that is because in Acts 1, it says that he gathered those who he had already revealed himself to. And so they are in the room and he reveals himself to them. And I believe the Lord wants to reveal himself to each and every one of us as the resurrected Christ. He wants to reveal to us that the prophecy has been fulfilled and he's seated In heavenly places. Fresh revelation of who he is. And he walks in the room and he says to them. John 20 verse 22 says. And when he had said this. He breathed on them and said to them. Receive the Holy Spirit. This is before Pentecost takes place they receive His Holy Spirit. He knew that they would need His Spirit to be able to fulfill what He's about to ask of them in Acts. And in the same way, when we have a revelation of the Christ, when we receive Him for who He is, we too have Him breathe on us and we receive His Holy Spirit. Because he knows that we too need his spirit to be able to fulfill what he's about to ask of you and me. And so they receive his omnipresence. The indwelling presence and spirit of God Almighty. Hebrews 13.5 says he will never leave, he will never forsake. And that's when we've received the omnipresence of God. When he breathes on us, he deposits his nature. The glory of God is now deposited on the inside of us. His nature, his gifts, his fruit has now been deposited in each and every one of us. And I like to think of it as a bank account. You know, you can put money and deposit money into an account your whole life and die with a really big bank balance. But if you never drew on those finances, you would have lived a life of lack and poverty. And the same applies in our spiritual walk. Everything we need for life and godliness, everything we need to live a life that God has called us to live has already been placed on the inside of us. The problem comes when we never make a withdrawal. We never draw from that which He has placed on the inside of us. And we live a life of lack as believers. Rich in the deposit, but poor in the expression. And so God places His omnipresence inside His disciples. And then we go to Acts chapter 1 verse 8. He gathers the same group of people together and He says to them, I have given you my spirit. Now I'm going to give you an instruction. He says, I want you to wait so that you may receive the promise of the Father. The promise was to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And in verse 8, he says, and you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be my witnesses I want you to note that he says, when my spirit has come upon you, they've already received the spirit in them. Now he says, I'm going to place something upon you. This is the manifest presence of God. The word manifest means to be explicit, undeniable, unmistakable, obvious to the eye and to the mind. And so his omnipresence is in them for them. But his manifest presence is upon them for someone else. Because he says that when you receive my manifest presence, you will be my witnesses. The word witness means to have evidence, proof, testimony. So what he's actually saying is when you have my manifest presence on your life, you will now become my witness, my evidence, the proof, the testimony of who I am. Jesus Christ, Savior of the world. And so when he asks you to love your neighbor, or better yet, to love your enemy. In the natural, it seems impossible. But he says, I'm not asking you to do it on your own. I've given the deposit of my nature. My fruit of love has now been placed on the inside of you. Draw from that thing that I've placed inside of you. It's not by might. It's not by power. It's by my spirit, says the Lord. And so he gives us the power to start to love beyond what we can naturally do on our own. Or maybe your circumstances should be dictating fear and anxiety and uncertainty. And he's saying, dig deep. Get peace, the peace, the fruit that I've placed inside of you. And when we start to walk in peace, the world goes, how? How do you live in peace amidst the turmoil? And suddenly we start to become a witness of Jesus, who is the Prince of Peace. And so his omnipresence has been placed in every one of us. But he says, I want my manifest presence to rest upon you. And when we do, when his presence comes upon us, we have the power to be and live exactly like he's asked us to. Not by striving in our own strength, but by his spirit. And then Jesus tells them to wait We see the 120 walk out and go straight into the upper room. They walk out in obedience. We see a group of people, Acts 1.4 says that they are gathered in one accord, in prayer, with supplication. The word supplication is begging for something. It's an act of begging. So here we see a group of people who have set themselves apart from the world, They've locked themselves into a room. They, they're walking in obedience. They're in unity. They've been prayerful. There's a hunger that's burning on the inside of them for all that God has promised. They're creating an atmosphere for His presence to be poured out upon them. And as I was looking at this, the Lord reminded me of the sermons that have been preached from this pulpit over the last few months. We've preached on a culture of hunger. We've preached on a culture of prayer that we would be a people of prayer. We've preached on, in the beginning of the year, we've preached on being set apart, that we would consecrate ourselves before God so that we may see His wonders. We've preached on a place of habitation where we would create an atmosphere for the outpouring of His Spirit, a place of holiness, a people of holiness. We've preached on the fear of God, that the fear of God will always lead us to a place of obedience. And just last week, we preached on just as, a message of unity that, Father, as you and your Son are one, may we too be one. And as I realized this, I fell to my knees and I said, God, you've been preparing us for the outpouring of your Spirit. This is no coincidence. God is wanting to send a revival in this place. He's been preparing us. He's been laying a foundation. He's been building something. And he says, these are the men and the women that I'm looking for. That will set themselves aside. That will be fully devoted to me. And when I do, I will pour out my spirit. We see 120 men and women fully devoted to God. And in Acts 2, God responds to them. He responds to a life poured out before Him. And He pours His Spirit out. There's a demand on us. Acts 2, chapter 2, says... And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Verse 6 And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused because everyone heard them speak in their own language. It was a sound that started in the upper room, but it was not contained to that place. It broke forth and it penetrated the community because of the sound that took place in the upper room. Church, this is the sound of revival. It's a sound of revival. A revival inside the church should always result in a revival outside of the church. And the world should be gathering at our doors because they hear a sound erupting. From within. We can pray for revival amongst the lost, but there first needs to be a revival amongst the saved. Amen. And so what is revival? Billy Graham's daughter says it's an outpouring of God's spirit where the church wakes. say that again it's an outpouring of God's spirit where the church wakes up revival begins with God's own people the Holy Spirit touches their hearts in you and gives them a new fervor and compassion zeal life and light and when he has come to you he then goes forth to the valley of dry bones What responsibility this lays on the church of God. If you grieve Him away from yourselves or hinder His visit, the poor, perishing world suffers sorely. And so I pray this morning, God, send revival. Start it with me. Wake us up, I pray. And so on Pentecost, the sound breaks out. The 120 go out into the streets. And it says, and immediately the people saw them to be different. They even say they're drunk. Listen, church, your family, your friends, your colleagues may not understand what's happened. But they should see that something's changed. We cannot have the manifest presence of God on our life and live like we used to. It's impossible. See, the world might not understand what's happened, but eventually they will come to you. Because you express the very thing that they are desperately searching for, and that is Jesus Christ. The world is not looking for a new definition of Christianity. They're looking for a new demonstration of it. Amen. And so we, we see these 120 walk out into the streets. They've changed. They're full of power. And it says that signs, wonders, and miracles follow them. The problem is, is the church too often wants the signs, wonders, and miracles. The fluffy stuff. The nice feeling, you know, that feeling in his presence. We just don't want him to change us. And we cannot ask God to use us but not change us. And we cannot allow him to change us and then not let him use us. They go hand in hand. And we come Sunday after Sunday. And Monday we walk into the office and no one sees the difference. And I ask, why? Acts is filled with accounts of people who were changed. Acts chapter 4, 13 says, And now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled and realized that they had been with Jesus. The world does not need to be told that you've been to church or you've been with Jesus. They need to see it in you. Acts 5.42 says, The disciples are beaten, and yet they go out rejoicing for being counted worthy to suffer for the gospel. I ask myself the question, when last have you and I been persecuted for the gospel? Or haven't we? Because no one knows that we're men and women of faith. Acts chapter 6. Stephen is brought before a jury and is falsely accused, but it says that his face shone like that of an angel. Does our countenance resemble that of Jesus? In the midst of accusation, in the midst of heartache, in the midst of difficulty, what do they see? And then in Acts 9, we know the story of Saul on the way to Damascus. He encounters Jesus. He encounters God. And it says immediately he goes out and starts to preach and the people are amazed. They say, wasn't he the one that was persecuting the Christians? But you see, he, was, he moved from a place of being the persecutor to the preacher. And I ask myself the question, are people amazed at our conversion? Because there needs to be a witness. There needs to be evidence. Otherwise, our witness becomes ineffective. And so we see the 120 in the upper room and the word says that they are baptized with the holy spirit with fire hallelujah the baptism of holy spirit is a gift to every believer you and i it's god's heart for us but the baptism of fire comes with sacrifice wherever there was fire In Scripture, there had always been a sacrifice. And God is asking us today, are we willing to live lives of sacrifice for Him? Romans 12 verse 1 says that we would present ourselves a holy sacrifice, living sacrifices, holy and acceptable before God. Our life itself needs to be the sacrifice. He's asking us to be a holy people, that we may be acceptable before him. So church, I challenge you this morning, that if God is asking you to lay something down, if he's tugging at your heart and saying, I need you to lay this thing down, I beg you today that you would heed to his voice. Maybe it's the laying aside of your dependency on something other than him. We see Peter goes out in Acts 2 verse 37 and 38 and it says that as he preached, their hearts were pierced. And immediately they say, what shall we do? when the Holy Spirit starts to speak to us, He'll pierce your heart of sin. And our response should be immediately, God, what do you want me to do? Maybe it's just a a deliberate sin that we're living in. Maybe it's He's asking you to restore relationship. Maybe He's asking you to walk away from one. Whatever it is, as He pierces your heart, may your response be, God, what do you want from me? They ask Peter, what do we do? He says, repent so that you may be baptized with His Spirit. Church, may we be a people that as God speaks to us, we get on our knees and we repent. That day, 3,000 people are added to the church. That, brothers and sisters is revival and I believe a key requirement to revival is a people that have repented revival is a renewed conviction of sin and repentance followed by an intense desire to live a life of obedience towards God not because I have to because I want to because it's my honor to. And we cannot expect the world to forsake sin, when the church won't. Can I say that again? We cannot expect the world to forsake their sin, when the church refuses to. And so repentance is not regret. Repentance is I'm walking this way, and God speaks to me, and I and I turn around and I go in a different direction it's a change in the way I think it's a change in the way I respond in the way I act in the way I speak that my conduct would be worthy of the gospel and so as the Holy Spirit speaks to each one of us and he does if you say God change me he will he will And every day I go before God and I say, God, search my heart. Cleanse me. If there is anything, God, that is hindering and stopping the full expression of your manifest presence in my life, show me. And time and time and time again, he shows me. And I'll have to get down on my knees and say, God, I repent. Forgive me but I need you to help me. He says, I've given you my spirit. He'll enable you. He'll help you to whatever I ask of you, whatever demand I make on you, whatever I require from you, I've given you my spirit. You've been enabled. You've now got my power to do what I've asked you to do. And 1 Thessalonians 5.19 says, Do not quench the spirit. The word quench means to extinguish, to snuff out, to smother. Can you see this speaks directly to a fire? To extinguish. The quickest way you can extinguish God's fire in your life is to silence and ignore His voice and His conviction. And slowly but surely, he just starts to back off. He just starts to become more quiet. He doesn't leave you. He's promised, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. And so you still have his omnipresence. You just don't have his manifest presence. And what starts to happen is the world looks to the church. And we no longer have a testimony. We're ineffective. We lack power. And there are no signs, wonders, and miracles that follow us. I believe it's time for a revival within the church. Church, it's time for revival. And I believe that when we come to a place of repenting, And maybe this morning it's going to be, God, I repent for being content. Maybe we've lived without revival because the church has been content to live without one. Maybe we need to repent and ask God to forgive us for being complacent. For our apathy and our carelessness that as the world perishes and goes to hell, the church has fallen asleep. And we need an awakening in our spirit. We need a Holy Ghost hatred for sin. We need a Holy Ghost desperation for the lost. We need a Holy Ghost compassion for the broken. But it starts with me and it starts with you. And it comes to a place where we say, God, forgive us. Forgive us for just being satisfied with your omnipresence but move us to a place where we are so desperate for your manifest presence. And I believe that when we get to that place, He'll pour out His Spirit. And we will see a revival erupt from this place. A sound will come forth. And we will impact cities and nations. But it needs to start with you and with me and we're going to go into a time of worship shortly and I want to open up this area this morning that as we worship God we would repent you would allow the Holy Spirit to speak to you and as he does you would respond You'd say, God, forgive us for being complacent. God, change me first. We're so busy praying that God will change the world. God, save the world. It's in such a mess. But He's looking to you and to me to do that. And I ask that as He starts to challenge and convict us this morning, Maybe we're living in sin. Maybe there is blatant sin in your life that you need to get on your knees and you need to repent this morning. Because we cannot expect Him to pour out His Spirit on us. But we're satisfied to live an unholy and an ungodly life. We need to repent. And so there's going to be space this morning for us to just, as the Lord leads, let a cry of revival erupt from this place this morning. May we cry out and say, God, give me a desperation for the world. Show me how. What do you ask of me, God? That my life would be a living sacrifice unto you. The band can come up and start getting ready. And before they take us into a time of worship, church, really, I, it's never easy to, to minister on repent. But you know, John the Baptist's ministry started and he said, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus came and he said, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Peter says, repent that you may receive his Holy Spirit. And I'm going to end off this morning by telling you a story. There was in the 1940s, a professor, his name was Professor Orr. He was a professor of theology and he took his students on an excursion trip. He took them to different sites where they could see historical places of belief, of religion. And one of the places he took them to was the home of John Wesley. Now, John Wesley was a great reformer of the church, he would teach, preach, and pray for revival. And he ushered in in prayer the masses of the many revivals that took place in the 1900s. And so they went into John Wesley's house and they walked into his kitchen where he would have meals. They then went into his study where the many books he had read and written and his notes had been preserved. And the students were walking through his study and looking at all this material. Then they went up to his bedroom. And they gathered around the bed in the small bedroom. And one of the students noticed two patches worn on the carpet next to John Wesley's bed. And he said to the professor, what is this? And the professor said, it's believed to be the knees of John Wesley. As every day he wouldn't spend a minute or two praying for revival, but hours on his knees. And he wore patches into the carpet of his bedroom, praying for revival. And so the students left, and they went down to the bus, and the professor did a head count. And he realized there was one student missing. So he went back into the kitchen and went into the study. He couldn't find him. Went up into the bedroom. And as he walked into the bedroom, he saw the head and the shoulders of one of the students who had placed his knees in the patches on the ground and he heard him saying Lord would you do it again do it again Lord but start with me and the professor walked around the bed and he put his hand on the shoulder of the student and he said son it's time to go and rising from his knees that day Billy Graham join the rest of the students in the bus. And then God did it again. And so I asked this morning, is there anyone in this room brave enough to say, God, do it again? Lord, would you do it again?